Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, journalists sick the police on Maxime Bernier. Jason Kenney supports Aaron O'Toole hanging around as conservative leader. And a look at rising public sector pay. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show, Thursday, September 30th. I know September just flew by in the year 2021. Elections will do that. They'll make time pass and then before you know it, you're in another election and then you're just in an endless cycle of time passing. I I once heard from someone that adulthood is just a string of saying, well, things will slow down next week over and over until you die. And on that cheery note, hello, welcome, thanks for uh, for tuning in. I will give a, a bit of a shameless plug right now. I am pre-recording this, of course, because I am going to be this weekend in Calgary, Alberta for the Virtual Canada Strong and Free Network Conference. And I know it's weird to be in Calgary for a virtual conference. This was, of course, going to be a, a big in-person conference in Red Deer. And then, as you know, because I, I railed against it on this show a little while ago, the Alberta government put in a range of restrictions that made having this in-person conference in the province that was hashtag open for summer impossible. So we're doing it, but it's going to be in a a studio. So it's going to be great quality and there'll be lots to talk about. I'm going to be on a panel with Danielle Smith and Bruce Party and Jonathan Kay about the 1984 totalitarian and Orwellian moves that governments are making across the country. And and in fact, across the world, we'll also be talking about free speech and Bill C-36 and C10. That's going to be on Saturday. And if you want to register to watch that live, you can go to CanadaStrongAndFree.network. I hope you do. It's going to be an absolute blast. And lots of other great speakers as well, notably Dennis Prager. So not often I get to be on the same lineup as Dennis Prager. Now, as you can see in that picture, my my the picture of me is a little bit smaller than his, but still I'm there. I'm in, I'm in the ballpark. I'm in the wheelhouse. So uh, hopefully I will be able to hear lots of feedback from you on how that goes. Only good feedback though. I get enough of the nasty stuff. I want to talk about Alberta a little bit later on in the show, but I I do want to start off by talking about the Canadian Association of Journalists going to war against Maxime Bernier. Now, there's that old saying in news that when a dog bites a man, it's not news. But when a man bites a dog, that's news. And journalists attacking PPC is, I think, the epitome of dog bites man. You'd say, well, what else is new? But this is a particularly interesting attack because the CAJ is calling on the RCMP, the National Police Agency in Canada, to investigate Maxime Bernier. So this independent, nonpartisan association of journalists wants police to investigate the leader of a political party that they completely ignored and in a lot of cases misrepresented in their coverage for the last six, seven weeks. The backstory of this uh, goes back about a week. Maxime Bernier had fielded a number of media requests from reporters that were all, he thought, done in kind of a, a very bad faith way. They were predicated on this idea that the PPC is rooted in racism or appeals to racists and white supremacists. I, I'm going to read them because the honesty here is very important. One of the requests from a CTV reporter says, I'm writing a story on the PPC in light of its rising popularity. Uh, yada, yada, yada. 
attracts and is endorsed by far-right groups, including neo-Nazis and white nationalists. And while it may attract a broad spectrum of people that don't necessarily hold these extremist views, the fact is there are people affiliated with the PPC with known ties to either neo-Nazi or white nationalist groups. How do you respond to this? Uh, Another request that came from Global News says, I'm working on a story about uh, black indigenous people of color voters. That's what BIPOC means and their feelings. I've spoken with a number of people and they're concerned about what your party stands for and they've expressed discomfort upon seeing your signs. They fear that the PPC is pushing far-right extremism and allowing people who are xenophobic in the party and to run as candidates. And then there was a request from the Hill Times uh, that says, I'm working on a story about violence and incidents of hate on the campaign trail. And says this guy from the Canadian Anti-Hate Network says there are PPC supporters that are all in the same group. And that's the exposure to racist and far-right propaganda that led to violence. And again, he's just uh, writing a story about what this one guy who's an activist says and putting it to Maxime Bernier to respond to. So Bernier tweeted out all three of these and says, these are from far-left activists masquerading as journalists. And then he went one step further, and in another tweet, shared their email addresses and said, you know what, if they're going to play dirty, we're going to play dirty too. Why don't you email them and let them know what you think? And predictably, we saw from a lot of these reporters, they were getting a bunch of nasty messages from people because Maxime Bernier sicked his supporters on these reporters. Now, this is something that there's a, a lot to delve into here. And I, and I want to be very clear. I do not support what he's done. Yes, it's public. their public email addresses, sure. I don't support taking a mob approach to social media. There's something about rising above. You can call them out, but the idea of getting people to email them serves no purpose whatsoever. So with that being said, it's his right to talk about what they're doing. It's his right to talk about, and I'd say it's encouraged to talk about what these reporters are doing and and show people the media requests because I'm a journalist. I have sent media requests. I know when I read those exactly what's happening. They've already written the stories. They've already written the stories and they're just checking the box to say, I've asked for comment, or they're going to weave whatever Maxime Bernier tells them into an existing narrative. So that Hill Time story is about Oh, the party's racist. So what does Maxime Bernier say to that? Uh, The global story was about, okay, the party makes uh, indigenous people and black people and other people of color nervous. What does Bernier say to that? And the first one was that this party is a magnet for white supremacists. What does Bernier say about that? The stories were already written. So it doesn't matter what Bernier or some PPC spokesperson say. They're just fitting into an existing narrative. So I I get the frustration and I get the PPC saying, we're not going to play ball with that. And I even get them saying, this is what we're up against. I just draw the line before sharing the email addresses, because then all of a sudden you have to own what your supporters email these reporters. And and yes, they're public email addresses. Someone who's motivated enough could look up all of those reporters and send them an email. That is something they could do. But by directing people to tell them what you think and and play dirty, you're you're stooping to their level. And he says that's what he's doing. He said, they're going to play dirty. We're going to play dirty. I'm more of a rise above kind of guy. However, that does not mean that this is a criminal harassment, which is what the Canadian Association of Journalists now says it is. They're arguing 
in this press release they sent out yesterday that law enforcement has to address targeted harassment of reporters. They say that uh, this tweet from Bernier, which uh, resulted in Twitter suspending his account for 12 hours, presumably under the doxing policy or anti-doxing policy, that this is something that desperately needs to be investigated. And they say efforts to intimidate journalists from asking tough, serious questions is a tactic ripped directly from the pages of an authoritarian playbook. The messages being directed towards reporters and editors are absolutely vile, deplorable, and completely acceptable. We strongly stand by our members during these distressing times. And they, they go on to say that there are sections of the criminal code that prohibit the willful promotion of hatred. And they're saying that now being a journalist is a protected ground against hate speech in the criminal code, which, by the way, it's not. But I digress. That's the argument they're making here. Now, at one point, and I'm going to delve into this in a future show, they go on to link this to C-36 and talk about the importance of regulating online harms, which is what uh, restoring Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act would do. Again, journalism, not a protected human rights group. As much as they may want to think they're special, they're not that special. Now, I've, I've had favorable interactions with the Canadian Association of Journalists. In 2019, when the Leaders' Debates Commission banned True North, the CAJ actually issued a statement defending us, and they didn't like how their guidelines on journalism had been appropriated by the government and used to exclude. So the CAJ has been solid on the issue of press freedom in the past. However, the Canadian Association of Journalists would also not admit True North as a member because they draw a line internally for what journalism is that excludes us. That being said, that's besides the point. I, I'm just trying to give some context about where it is they're coming from here. They believe that they are the official club, and in a lot of ways they are, for journalists in Canada. So they're absolutely right to want to support their members. They're absolutely in the right to want to tell members, hey, if you've been you know, having some troubles with people emailing you things and you need some support, we're going to reach out and provide it to you. That's all fine. But to say that the police should be investigating a political leader for mean tweets about journalists is absolutely, I mean, it's just, it's egregious. For, for starters, it just doesn't help them. It doesn't help them because it, it turns back on them because all of a sudden, most people are going to say, just, just toughen up. And, and that's terrible because I've seen some of the email, I mean, I see emails that are sent to me, but I've seen some of the emails that a lot of reporters will tweet out that they get, vile things, sexist, racist, just horrible things that no one should say at all to another human being. And, and when I see that, I'm like, oh, I, I don't like that people are subjected to that nastiness. It's just, it's just not good. And while that is inexcusable, I am a firm believer in this idea that there are certain jobs and roles you take on that invite it. And that doesn't make it right. That, that I'm not at all doing this. I'm not, don't accuse me of victim blaming. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that in the society that we have now, it's going to happen. So you do need to have a tough skin. And by and large, a lot of journalists do. But more importantly, journalists above most other groups should be taking a very firm stand in support of free speech. Unequivocally, unquestioningly in support of free speech. That should be the role of journalists because journalists use their free speech to challenge authority. They use their right to freedom of the press to challenge authority. And you can only do that if you take a principled stand in support of free speech. 
So what, what the Canadian Association of Journalists is doing here is calling on Canada's police to start clamping down on speech that they do not approve of. Now, I want you to understand why this is such a, a bizarre position to take, because the CAJ has for years taken aim at the RCMP for being too heavy-handed. There's one statement in 2017, RCMP named Canada's most secretive law agency as they talk about giving the RCMP the Code of Silence Award for achievement in government secrecy, which, by the way, the RCMP probably deserves. Another article here where the CAJ says that the RCMP needs to follow the court order to respect media rights after a journalist was arrested at Ferry Creek out in Vancouver Island or on Vancouver Island. So the idea here is that they've accused the RCMP in the past of, of being too opaque, of being too heavy-handed, of not respecting rights, and now they're turning around and saying, we don't like what Maxime Bernier tweeted, so you should launch an investigation and charge him with hate speech. Now, here's the thing. Twitter has its own policies. Twitter suspended Bernier's account and pulled the tweet. Twitter made its decision there based on its terms of service. In a free market sense, that's what should have happened. But they want to go one step further. What do they, do they want him in handcuffs? Do they want him arrested? What do they want to happen? Do they want to make it illegal to tweet out a reporter's email address and say, tell them what you think? Again, I wouldn't do it because I, I think it surrenders the moral high ground, but I certainly would not support the criminalization of something like that. And I remember years ago when Section 13 was first under the microscope around the time it was repealed by a, a private member's bill from conservative MP Brian Storseth, most people in the media were very much in favor of free speech. They were against Section 13. They were in favor of it being repealed. And it, it's scary how a decade later, less than a decade later, in fact, the media cabal really doesn't care all that much about free speech. They want to protect their rights. They want to protect their insular freedoms. And this is the problem with the parliamentary press gallery monopoly is that they oftentimes, as an organization, I'm not talking about individual reporters, as an organization, they tend to only look inward and focus on their own rights, their own freedoms, without looking at the broader picture. And I've got to give credit where it's due. I've, I've told the story countless times and I'm going to keep telling it. When I was covering the Global Conference for Media Freedom in London, England in 2019, and Christian Freeland said, uh, we're going to let everyone into our press conference except for Rebel and True North. Sheila Gunn-Reed was there for Rebel. I was there for True North. All of the reporters from the Globe and Mail, CBC, CTV, Al Jazeera, Global News, they all said, we're not covering your stinking press conference unless you accredit everyone. I want to see more of that. And for the most part, I do. I've been treated very well when I was out on the campaign trail covering the conservatives. I had great relationships with a lot of journalists. We worked together. But some of these institutions, these organizations... I don't know if you're familiar with it. John O'Sullivan, who's a, a fantastic writer. I've interviewed him in the past. I should have him back on. He was a, a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher. He coined O'Sullivan's first law, in which he said that any institution that is not explicitly right-wing will over time become explicitly left-wing. And it's impossible to come up with a piece of, I mean, even a lot of the so-called right-wing organizations still drift left. But he, he was tremendously on point with that. 
And I would say a lot of these journalism organizations are the same. They're made up of journalists who on an individual level may be fair and balanced and, and dedicated, but once they morph into that institution, the institution takes on a mind of its own, and as we're seeing in the CAJ, moves in a direction that fundamentally does not respect the very right on which its members rely to earn a living and to do the work they do. And it's absolutely shameful. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Speaking of the RCMP, I, I have to talk about this story. And also, speaking of the media, the RCMP's union is pushing back against the vaccine mandate that Justin Trudeau has promised. He said just the other day, if you have flights booked in the next couple of weeks, you better make sure you're vaccinated because the mandate is coming. That's the uh, message that he's putting forward. And <laughs> interestingly enough, there was a tweet from Rosemary Barton that I, I found kind of interesting. Justin Trudeau was doing some uh, photo op at a vaccine clinic and there was a guy getting vaccinated and he told Justin Trudeau he's getting it because he realizes he can't do, I won't say the word because I don't want to lose our clean tag on iTunes, but you can see it up on the screen there. He can't do crap until he gets it. So that actually is very dangerous for people who are opposing vaccine mandates because there are a lot of people that are like that guy where they're only getting it because they feel the government is forcing them to. But anyway, the RCMP union is pushing back against a vaccine mandate. They say that a police officer should have a right to refuse vaccination. Now, this is a position that most civilized people and most civilized societies would take, that you do not surrender your right to decide what you put in your body. But I, I want to, I mean, the story itself is, is pretty standard, but I, I want to hone in on the way CBC reported on the story. Look at the headline and look at the use of quotation marks. The RCMP union says it supports a Mountie's right to refuse vaccination. And I know they're quoting, but at the same time, they're also making a point when they say that. Whoever wrote the headline, and oftentimes, it's, in fact, usually it's not the reporter itself who writes, the reporter themselves who writes the headline, but, but by whoever wrote that headline is trying to say that this, this is just some made-up thing. You don't have a right. They support their right to refuse vaccination. And there's something very revealing in just a couple of small quotation marks. Sheila Gunn-Reed, uh, Sheila's getting a couple of plugs on the show today. Sheila's a, a good friend. I do not regret this at all. But she asked on Twitter, why did you put right in scare quotes? It is their rights. Yeah, they are the they are the scare quotes. Those are what you do when you want to terrify someone, which is basically what's happening now. Although, in fairness, I do think that we should put some quotation marks in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms now around rights and freedoms. Doesn't that work? The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms? See? That's how you use scare quotes, CBC. Uh, one interesting thing, just uh, before we jump into talking about government pay and public sector pay, is the Aaron O'Toole leadership fight. Now, Aaron O'Toole is still gung-ho, wanting to hold on to his leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. And one interesting development in this is that Premier Jason Kenney is supporting Aaron O'Toole still, sort of. 
And I, I say sort of for a reason that will become apparent in just a moment. Now, to give you a bit of the backstory here, Jason Kenney gave a very, very desirable endorsement to O'Toole during the leadership race last year. Kenney's endorsement likely moved some votes in Alberta, certainly established Aaron O'Toole as being the anti-Peter McKay candidate, which I think is very positive outside of, you know, perhaps Atlantic Canada and, and maybe a couple of downtown Toronto ridings. And that endorsement from Kenny came with the designation that Aaron O'Toole is the only true blue conservative. He's the only one that's not going to bring the party to the left. He's solid, rah, rah, rah. So I was interested because I was covering a press conference by Jason Kenny last week in this idea of whether he still supports O'Toole's continued leadership. Here was that exchange. Last year, you endorsed Aaron O'Toole's leadership bid, which we know was ultimately successful for the Conservative Party. After the election results, there have been some calls from within the federal Conservative Party for Aaron O'Toole to step down or, or uh, certainly uh, people wanting him to lose a leadership review, perhaps. Uh, does he have your support to remain as federal Conservative leader still? I think uh, that a party like the federal Conservatives uh, should maintain stability. You know, Prime Minister, I was part of Prime Minister Harper's Conservative Party when he lost uh, the 2004 election. Many people were disappointed. He went on to become Prime Minister and, and form a very effective government uh, for the next decade. Um, so I think uh, uh, constantly uh, changing leaders uh, doesn't uh, in create a public confidence. Um, and and I think, you know, it's, it, to be a leader, as Mr. O'Toole has tried to be in uh, the context of a pandemic is especially challenging to get your message out, to meet Canadians, to get, get, to, get to be known. So I'm sure that um, Aaron is going to work with his team to identify things that could have been done better uh, in this campaign and the lead up to it, to listen uh, to grassroots party members. Uh, but I think the immediate instinct um, to uh, remove a leader after, dis after a disappointing election outcome just creates constant uh, instability. I've played this for a few different people, and it's interesting how people take different things from it. So when I heard that, I was thinking it was very tacit. He didn't talk about anything objectively about O'Toole that he thinks makes him deserving of staying on. There was even that one line about O'Toole trying to be a leader. And at the same time, he seems to emphasize continuity and stability more than, yeah, Aaron O'Toole has a lot to be proud of and he should carry on. Now, other people have heard that and say, yeah, that's he's supporting O'Toole. He's saying that O'Toole should remain on. So I'll let you figure out what he means. I, I don't want to start parsing words and saying, oh, well, you know, it sounded like there was a comma there and that changes the meaning of it. But it certainly it wasn't gung-ho. It wasn't an enthusiastic support, which I, I found interesting. However... There's another angle to this, which is that Jason Kenney is facing calls for his own ousting from the leadership of the United Conservative Party. So I understand him not wanting to decide to be on team let's dethrone the leader right about now. He's had two MLAs in his caucus, Leela Ahir and Angela Pitt, within the last week that have said they do not have confidence in his leadership. They've not been kicked out just yet. But when Todd Lowe and Andrew Barnes said very similar things a few months back, they were gone in very short order. And the UCP has actually moved up its leadership review. They were supposed to have one in the fall, wherein United Conservative Party members in Alberta could vote to uh, oust J Jason Kenney as leader. That was going to be in the fall. Now they've moved it up to the spring. 
by popular demand. Now, in fairness, th this is something that's constitutionally mandated. It's not because they're uh, wanting to get rid of Jason Kenney that they're doing this, but there is a lot of interest and a lot of demand for doing it more quickly and doing it sooner. So that is reflective of a demand in the UCP. So we will certainly be following that, and I'll be out there in April in Edmonton. Not that uh, April in Edmonton is still winter, I think, by Edmonton standards. So I'll, I'll dress warmly, but I will be there. I will be covering that for you as that nears. I want to turn to one topic that always is unchanging, another one of these dog bites man topics, but I still think one worth talking about, and that is public sector pay on the rise, and specifically in this context, public sector pay not on the decline. A lot of Canadians dealt with pay freezes or pay cuts or job losses over the pandemic. In the private sector, the public sector pretty immune from that, even as the tax base shrinks and other austerity measures come into play. I want to talk about a new report from our friends over at secondstreet.org. COVID has led to pay cuts in business, but no government has cut pay. Colin Craig is the president and joins me now. Colin, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on as always. Well, thanks for having me, Andrew. So, so explain this. We've seen for the last year and a half businesses that have been forced by government fiat to shut down. We've had a lot of insecurity in the private sector on jobs, yet none of that insecurity and uncertainty has made its way to the public sector. Yeah, that's basically it. As the pandemic emerged, we saw all these news stories about various businesses and many industries uh, struggling and having no choice but to cut back on compensation. Everything from uh, Chrysler in the automotive sector to uh, oil and gas companies to entertainment companies like Cineplex, CFL teams. There were so many different stories. We thought, well, wait a second, there, you know, there's one sector here that's missing, and that's the government. And so it got us thinking, you know, when was the last time that governments actually cut employee pay? And so we filed these requests right across the country to ask that question. I know that we haven't yet seen the totality of the financial toll that COVID has taken. And, and I include in that not just the pandemic itself, but also the lockdowns and restrictions and, and whatnot. But one thing that we know is that the private sector has to be responsive to the market. If your business goes down, you don't have enough money to keep your staff and you don't need as many staff. In the case of government, we know from all of these business losses that the tax base had to shrink, at least in some way. But that same responsiveness to revenue to inflow isn't there with government no it's not because governments just look at your kids and mine they they just rack up tons and tons of debt rather than saying hey wait a second you know we got to curtail spending a bit i don't think too many canadians would say the government shouldn't have done anything in terms of relief and that i think most people would agree that that was necessary but just the overall largesse there was no restraint on the government's part so you had lots of people in the private sector taking pay reductions and as our research found, really nothing in government. Um, you know, the federal government told us that they don't have any records of ever cutting employee pay, never mind during the pandemic, never at all. That's what they told us. Or if it did happen, it went so far back that everyone's forgotten and no one has any record of it. Um, provincially, pretty much across the country, provinces had no uh, records on any kind of uh, pay reductions. The last pay reduction seemed to have happened in the 1990s. Which, uh, you know, if you think about that, that's over 20 years ago now since there's been any uh, real wage restraint in, in government at the uh, provincial level. The one example that we did find was uh, Manitoba where employees were required to take five unpaid days off, 
which isn't the same as a pay cut because with a pay cut, you still do the same amount of work. You just make less doing it. So that was one example provincially. And then at the city level, we saw that in uh, Mississauga, they had uh, four positions that will receive a pay reduction, but it's not for current employees. It's for future employees. So the bottom line is out of millions and millions of government employees covered by our uh, information requests, uh, there were no pay cuts. And when you talk about how far back this goes, yeah, it's possible that, you know, in 1927, the fisheries department took, a, you know, took a pay cut in some way. But we're talking about overwhelmingly uh, compensation that's only ever rising and, and never going back, even when the economy itself retreats, it sounds like. Yeah, basically. I mean, we, we fundamentally have two different societies when it comes to working in this country. You have those outside of government who, as you alluded to, have to face the ups and downs of the market. Com companies have to respond, they have to compete, they have to be responsible, they can't just rack up enormous amounts of uh, debt and not worry about uh, how they're gonna pay for it. And then on the other side of the equation is government. And, and government, and I mean, there's been hundreds of thousands of employees in government who actually received pay increases during the pandemic. Uh, in some cases, um, those were contracts that had been signed before the pandemic hit. But in other cases, you had the government out signing new contracts with pay increases during the pandemic. And the CTF, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, found that uh, over 300,000 federal employees alone received a pay increase during the pandemic. So it's really two different worlds. And I think it's, it's uh, fair when people ask that question, how is this fair for everyday working people? Uh, who are having to face these tough economic times, and yet they're paying for people in government who, who don't really have to face it. I do get the question of fairness, but if you're a, a public sector worker who signed up to uh, work for whatever department or whatever municipality under a certain set of circumstances, I can understand you listening to this interview right now and saying, well, hang on, why why does other people's suffering have to become my suffering? I mean, isn't there an argument that instead of trying to be doing this race to the bottom, we could try to remove some of these barriers that were preventing the public sector from having prosperity or the private sector rather? Yeah, and I think we have to ask the question, well, when would the public sector ever have to uh, feel the pinch? If not now, during a downturn when everyone else is, and they're the ones who are struggling to put food on their tables, and they're also having to pay for pay increases and those in government to not ever be affected. It just it doesn't seem like a fair argument to say that those in government should never have, the, have their belts tightened. Uh, and to be fair, it's not it's not the case that there's never any restraint. You will see pay freezes in government. That is not, um, uh, you will see that from time to time, but it's the actual pay cut, you know, a 5% cut, a 10% pay cut, whatever it is. It's just, it's really become unheard of in government. Like I say, the last examples uh, that we identified went back to the 1990s in Ontario. They had uh, Ray Days, which is similar to what I talked about with what Manitoba did where they had unpaid days. Uh, they did do that up to 12 unpaid days. Manitoba did something similar. In Alberta, they did a 5% uh, pay reduction. PEI did something, I believe it was in the late 90s too. So you did see those examples in the 90s and at the provincial level. But really, it's been a totally different world since the 90s. Uh, and you have this, this sort of two-society state where you have those in government who really are not affected by what's happening uh, in the outside world and then those in the outside world, people in private sector, nonprofits and that, that uh, quite often do have to feel the pinch. 
And, and how does the underlying, how do the underlying circumstances that led to that austerity in the '90s compare to the challenges in the last year and a half? You know, that's a very good question. Uh, my guess would be that it would pale in comparison to what we're facing today. I mean, you look at the federal government alone, they racked up hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in debt in, in one year alone, uh, simply to, to pay for the pandemic. Uh, a lot of provinces are, are back swimming in debt again. So there's a lot of uh, very tough financial situations out there. And I think really what people might want to reflect on is this. How do we address the situation we're in? We've got governments spending way more than what they're bringing in in revenues, and that is not sustainable. So how do you deal with it? And often governments present two scenarios. They say we either cut services or we raise taxes. Now, I think a lot of the services that uh, Canadians receive from governments, they probably wouldn't want those cut. Policing, healthcare, people fixing roads and bridges. Um, and then on the other end of the equation, you've got raising taxes. No one wants to see taxes go up right now because that would hurt a lot of families that are struggling and a lot of businesses that are struggling. So you often hear these two scenarios. There is a third, and that is to do a better job with the, the revenues that governments have right now. And one thing they can do is cut salaries back a little bit, cut uh, pensions back a little bit, You know, bring the compensation packages back down to size so that they're more fair with what people in uh, outside government are are receiving for the same type of work. And that's one way you can ensure the services continue. It's just done a little bit more cost effectively. I know this was a, a multi-government level uh, project on, on your part. You went across the country, federal, provincial, municipal. What were the, the standout examples, uh, really the worst examples, either for lack of transparency or, or just for how little in, in the way of restraint they were exhibiting? You know, that that's a very good question. Um, a lot of governments didn't even know when the last time was that they they reduced pay. You know, like I said, Ottawa told us they don't have any records of ever doing that. I believe it was New Brunswick as well that, that did that. Um, you know, in, in Calgary, Calgary is a city that has been struggling for a good five or six years now because of the uh, oil and gas downturn especially. And they gave us data going back to the 1970s showing that there has been no pay cuts at all, zero. And so there's a lot of examples like that where we know that different parts of the econ of the country have struggled economically, and you can see that governments just kind of sailed right through, that there was no wage restraint whatsoever. And I think ultimately the big picture is that we see these studies from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, from the Fraser Institute and others, that show this compensation gap. Government employees making more in terms of their total compensation than people outside of government doing similar work. And so the end result is this, you have everyday taxpayers that have to pay more for those in government to, to make this, uh, this uh, higher compensation level. So, you know, the end result is uh, it, it costs everyday people more in taxes. And I, you know, to be clear, it's, I, I wouldn't look at the, the everyday uh, worker in government and say, well, this is their fault. I mean, most people just go to work and they want to put in an honest day's work and get a good paycheck for it. But it's, it's ultimately elected officials and governments that agree to these contracts and they've let these compensation levels run away from what, uh, what would be competitive. 
Yeah, and I think it's also important, and I know it's outside the scope of this report, but to look at the uh, general imbalance between public and private sector pay for the same jobs uh, in general, because this is something I know other research has shown is already an area where there's a, a significant gap. So the public sector employees for the same job in the private sector are, are making more, and pensions, I mean, we could go on all day with this. But I'm glad you've done the work on this. SecondStreet.org has the new report finding no evidence of any major governments dropping pay despite private sector businesses having to do that or just shut down altogether. Colin Craig, Second Street's president, joins us now. Thanks so much for coming on, Colin. Well, thanks for having me, Andrew. And if any of uh, your viewers or listeners would like to actually see their uh, government responses, they're all on our website. They can see them for themselves. Perfect. And we'll uh, put it up on the screen there right now. Thanks very much. We'll uh, talk to you soon, Colin. Thanks again. That was Colin Craig. Like I said, the sun rises, the sun sets, public sector pay goes up, private sector pay goes down. Some things are unchanging, but you still need reminders of that from time to time. We have to end things there. My thanks to all of you for tuning in to the show today. And do check out the Canada Strong and Free Conference on Saturday featuring yours truly and uh, some many better people. Don't, I mean, if you're signing up just for me, great, but there are other reasons. So at least check out the website and, uh, and see who's there. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, God. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.